Welcome to Nuclecast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and today we have a very special guest all the way from NATO headquarters we have Mr. Jim Stokes, who is the Director of Nuclear Policy at NATO. And as you can imagine, our discussion is going to be NATO nuclear policy and the nuclear mission in Europe. And of course, this is a great time, or perhaps not so great a time, to be talking about nuclear policy in NATO. And so it should be one of our best, most Man, it's a, it's a, it's a, I can't think of a, the right word, but it's just a great time to be talking about this topic. It's never been more relevant that perhaps that's what I should say. It's never been more relevant. Jim, welcome to NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on. So for those who may not have focused much on NATO and its nuclear mission. Can you tell us about, and and in particular, you know, for many Americans, they're so used to our ability to dominate and to just essentially act at will. But within NATO, that's not necessarily true. So can you tell us about the NATO nuclear mission and then sort of give our largely American audience, that context of operating within NATO that they may not be familiar with. Yeah, happy to do that. It's a, it's definitely an interesting perspective. Uh, I, obviously, I am an American. I've worked for the, the U.S. Defense Department for about 22 years. Uh, came out here to, to Brussels, Belgium about two years ago, and have been working that, that mission set ever since. And uh, first from our our U.S. mission to NATO and now actually working directly for, for NATO headquarters, as you noted. Um, it's definitely an interesting time to be here in Europe. I actually started working these issues the same week that Russia had invaded Ukraine back in February 2022. Uh, and it's uh, it's a very relevant set of issues. And, and living over here in Europe, it definitely hits home. I mean, both here in Belgium, as we travel around Europe and, and talk with other people, I mean, it's it's very palpable that there's war here in Europe. NATO nuclear deterrence is definitely back at the the forefront of NATO's overall deterrence and defense agenda. Uh, As you know, nuclear weapons have been a core component of NATO's deterrence and defense posture ever since its inception. This year, 2024, we're celebrating NATO's 75th anniversary, which means that NATO has been a nuclear alliance for 75 years and counting. And the strategic nuclear forces of the alliance, particularly those in the United States, are the supreme guarantee of the safety and security of the allies. Now, you've also got the independent strategic nuclear forces of the United Kingdom and France. Those also have a deterrent role of their own and contribute significantly to the overall security of the alliance. But what we really focus on here at NATO headquarters is uh, our posture here in Europe, which relies on U.S. B-61 nuclear weapons that are forward deployed here in Europe, as well as allies who contribute what we call dual capable aircraft or DCA to the mission. Now, those aircraft include U.S. F-15s, as well as 
F-16s and tornadoes that are flown by other allies. And soon they'll all be transitioning to F-35s, the world's only you know, true fifth generation fighter. And those aircraft, you know, every day they, they fly conventional operations such as air policing missions uh, across the alliance. But they do have a nuclear role in which they can be equipped with nuclear weapons. And if they ever needed to use them in a conflict, they can. And the personnel from those allied nations are, are trained to use them accordingly. And then we've got other allies that contribute really critical conventional capabilities to support that DCA mission, such as air-to-air refueling and suppressing enemy air defenses. So it really is kind of a, a, a composite effort here across the different allies to be able to enable the theater nuclear mission here in Europe. Uh, I do want to, you know, of course, note that for the, the nuclear weapons we have here in Europe, the U.S. maintains absolute custody and control over those weapons at all times. Um, and that, you know, the real purpose of why we have a nuclear deterrent, as we call it here in Europe, it's, you know, to be able to attempt to preserve peace, although, you know, we're not exactly in a peaceful time here in Europe, but also to prevent coercion and try to deter aggression. And the day-to-day role then is for for deterrence, all right? So nuclear weapons are unique, um, and the circumstances under which we think NATO might ever have to use nuclear weapons are remote. But nevertheless, you know, if the security of any NATO ally is threatened, we have to be able to show that we've got the capabilities and the resolve to impose costs on an adversary that would be completely unacceptable and, you know, outweigh any benefits they might think they would have from that. And then, you know, just to kind of note on the, the kind of the unique aspect of, of being a nuclear alliance with three different nuclear powers involved. You know, we've got a, a, a structure here at NATO called the Nuclear Planning Group. It's been around since, uh, I believe, the 1960s. It's really kind of how we go through political consultations among uh, the different allies that participate in it and how we make decisions. And it's really sort of the, the heart of our work here at NATO. But that Nuclear Planning Group is responsible for all of NATO's nuclear deterrence policies and any decisions that we make. And that's how all allies maintain full political control over the decisions that we'd make for uh, nuclear deterrence. And it also means that, you know, in peacetime or even in crisis or conflict, we don't, we don't delegate any authorities down to, to Sakir, to General Kavolier. Um, but, you know, we, we have been looking at how we can come together to discuss a number of different issues what's going on within the security context here within Europe. And then, you know, broadly speaking, what's going on with the war in Ukraine, what NATO needs to do on the conventional side and making sure that we're coherent on the nuclear side with what we're doing here. So as you, you know, you mentioned the NPG, can you talk for uh, a minute or two and just give us a sense of how that operates. Cause that's something most Americans that maybe they've heard of it. Maybe they know it exists, but, but what does it mean? You know, what is it, how does it work and, and what are the implications of its, you know, discussions and, you know, let's suppose the proverbial fan is hit. What, what would be the response? How would that work? Walk us through that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a good question. So uh, to back up just a second, so here at NATO we have the North Atlantic Council, and so that that's like the the supreme body, if you will, that where the allies come together. And currently, we've got thirty one allies in the alliance, and hopefully, we'll have thirty two if Sweden joins here in in the near future. 
but the North Atlantic Council meets at the ambassador level, and they meet on a regular basis to discuss a number of issues affecting the alliance. Um, the nuclear planning group is is kind of like that body, but uh, it currently has 30 different allies because uh, France has chosen not to participate in it. Um, so the allies come together, and typically it meets uh, at least once a year. It can meet more often if it, if it chooses to, but it's at the defense minister level. So for the United States, it's for the, the Secretary of Defense. They come together and they discuss a number of different issues. Uh, my responsibility here at NATO is I chair the, the committee that's subordinate to the nuclear planning group. And so we do a lot of the, the preparatory work, the developing the documents that then goes up to the MPG ministers for review. So that's sort of in a, a peacetime environment. We ever got into a direct crisis that had a nuclear dimension or even a conventional conflict. And there is a, obviously would be a nuclear dimension associated with that. If it was with Russia, the NPG can convene either as with the defense ministers or the ambassadors. And then we have a number of different measures that we could look at taking to be able to respond to that situation. And the key thing there really is thinking about the escalation dynamics part of it, right? So you need to know what's going on in the conventional side, what's being done if it's in a crisis or a conflict, and then how do we remain coherent on the nuclear side? And that's always a bit of a balancing act because we don't want to we don't want to escalate the situation, but we also understand that an adversary may try to escalate. And so we need to make sure that we've got credible uh, capabilities in the resolve to be able to employ them so that the adversary doesn't mistake, doesn't miscalculate and think uh, we can get uh, um, you know, be able to to dominate NATO in any capacity or be able to take advantage of the situation where they think that, you know, that we don't have unity across the alliance on issues. And for nuclear issues here in Europe, they sometimes can be kind of sensitive. But what I've seen, and, and I think what we've seen from some polling numbers in the last couple of years, there's really strong support across all the allied populations for nuclear deterrence. And NATO is seen as a responsible nuclear actor. So, you know, in some of the articles and podcasts I've written, I've been critical of the the NATO nuclear mission, that it's really not up to par. Now, before the show, we were talking and you said you, you we've really done quite a bit to improve that. Can, can you go through, tell us what you can about what you've been doing, how you've been working to make the NATO deterrent stronger, to address some of the challenges Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So what we have here in Europe, I would describe those dual capable aircraft. So we have various air bases uh, across Europe uh, where those aircraft operate from. And as I mentioned earlier, we do have U.S. nuclear weapons that are located here in Europe, although we don't disclose where those locations are. But for the, the air bases that we have, there's been a number of investments that have been made with funding from across the allies, so it's NATO common funding, to upgrade the security at those bases. So we've got improved fencing, camera systems put in place, weapon systems for the operators. And I I can tell you from personal experience, having visited many of these different air bases, I've seen the response drills these guys have. Uh, I would not want to try to break onto one of those bases and do anything to damage those aircraft. Um, We've got highly capable allies that, that guard those bases and the aircraft and the capabilities we have there. In part, again, because these are, are conventional aircraft, and so they're using them often. Um, but, you know, there, there were some incidents in the, in the past where 
you know, there are some vulnerabilities at these bases, but a lot of those have been closed. So in a, in a peacetime environment, we are very comfortable that our nuclear forces are, are safe and secure and hence very credible that we can affect that mission if we need to. Uh, now, one of the things that has been, and this is sort of a policy issue, is this idea, if you're going to have a PSYOP or a series of plans, you have to have an established adversary. So with, with NATO historically over the last 30 years saying we have no declared adversary, how is that? Is that changing in terms of your planning? How do you guys treat that? It, you know, for me, it's a question I'm, I'm, I personally am curious about. And so I, I, how do you guys think about that aspect of sort of nuclear policy? No, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's something that was, as you noted, uh, for the past 30 years, there were a number of other priorities here within NATO. Um, and, and you well know what the different types of operations that were being conducted uh, here and in, in other regions and uh, and you're right in the policy documents. Sometimes it wasn't clear, but I think in the 2022 strategic concept that just published, available online, if anybody wants to take a look at it, also recent summit communiques, it's been very clear what the front site focus is, and that is Russia and and also terrorist groups. And but for us, though, when in working in uh, nuclear deterrence, we're more focused on Russia than anything else. I mean, that's that's really what our focus is here in Europe, especially with the theater capabilities that we have. And so that's really going to kind of inform a lot of the, the work that we're doing when we're looking across our posture and readiness from a deterrence and a defensive perspective, conventional and nuclear planning, the, the whole bit. So it really needs to kind of come together. And I tell you what, the, the folks down at, at SHAPE headquarters, where General Cavoli is the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, are doing really great work to kind of look at how they can transform themselves into being a warfighting headquarters, making sure that the alliance, all the allies are postured correctly to be able to deter any sort of Russian aggression. And that's, that's not something that we can predict what that would be. And it's not necessarily going to be siloed or stovepiped. It could come in the cyber domain. It could come in the space domain. And so we need to really think through cross domain, you know, types of integrated strategies for deterrence and how we'd be able to deter an attack. And then if that fails, how we can restore deterrence or be able to defend the territorial integrity of the Alliance. So what are some of the challenges for the allies as we think about nuclear policy, the capabilities? What are those challenges? Well, again, I think there's a kind of a broader perspective here. And, and you know, from where I sit within NATO headquarters in defense policy and planning, we, we have to kind of look at both sides of it. And, you know, before I get into some of the details, here's why. On the conventional side, if you think about the pace of change, and I, I've come from an acquisition organization, so the conventional side, you can move a lot faster. When you're looking at readiness, you know, allocation of conventional forces, even your, your acquisition of capabilities, that moves pretty quick. On the nuclear side, it's always a bit slower, right? And, and we're also more prudent or potentially even cautious about that. But even from an acquisition perspective, that takes some time. So here's kind of where we are right now. You know, we're we're coming into the third year of Russia's brutal war against Ukraine uh, at the end of February. Uh, Moscow is continuing to, you know, conduct this war. We don't know when that's going to end. We are certainly taking a look at that in light of not only the, the war in Ukraine, but the potential conflict against NATO. So what would that look like in the future? 
And, you know, certainly what we've seen, you know, the Russians are blowing through their conventional munitions. And of course, the Ukrainians, they continue to destroy Russian forces and Moscow's turning to other countries to be able to source munitions and get resupplied. And even though it's domestic weapon production has helped it to kind of reconstitute there to some extent, it's not everything. And so we, we increasingly see that Russia is going to continue to rely on its nuclear forces for deterrence against NATO. Now, we have to consider the war in Ukraine now and a hypothetical conflict with NATO in the future would probably look very different. So we, we can't necessarily mirror image or, or just take the lessons learned from here. So what would that future conflict with Russia potentially look like? It might Russia might have a different strategy different capabilities, or even a logic or motivation for that. And so what we consider here is that nuclear deterrence will have to continue playing a fundamental role in the security and and territorial integrity of the NATO uh, allies. What, What I think some of the challenges we're dealing with now is looking at defense production, the overall capacity, you know, how we can build up forces. And a lot of those forces remained under national control. They're not necessarily given to to shape and to secure. And so we're looking at overall mix of capabilities, what we can do right now, what we can plan for in the future. The allies are absolutely spending a lot more money building up those forces, but that does take some time. So again, a balancing act between making sure that there isn't a, a window of opportunity from a Russian perspective now, and we're also supporting Ukraine in the now, while building up that future capability, that pool of forces that can be available to to SACUR. Now, one of the ways that we can demonstrate credibility is through our exercises. So in the conventional space, Steadfast Defender is going on right now. It's the largest NATO exercise that's been put together in decades, over 90,000 troops that are contributing from 31 different nations. I mean, that's a very credible demonstration of the military might the Alliance can put together. In the nuclear domain, we're, we're a little bit more constrained. We've got one annual nuclear flying exercise, which is called Steadfast Noon. Uh, it's held once a year, roughly the same time period. And we do this so that we can be transparent about what we're doing, but also reduce the risk of misinterpretation. Um, but it does have a deterrent effect, and it does have the, the other part of my mission, an assurance effect. We assure the allied publics of the credibility of uh, our nuclear deterrent here. And so lastly, and I kind of touched on this earlier, we, we need to think through escalation dynamics, right? So Russia's invasion of Ukraine has demonstrated not only to NATO, but to all the world that, you know, Moscow is, is willing to, to not really abide by any international norms or treaties. You know, we saw this in terms of the, the reckless nuclear rhetoric that's coming out of Russia. Just a few weeks after they signed a joint declaration with the U.S., U.K., France and China, that a, quote, nuclear war cannot be won and therefore should not be fought. They started using nuclear rhetoric before they went into into Ukraine. Um, we also saw that, you know, right before the invasion of Ukraine, they had an out-of-cycle exercise of its strategic deterrence forces, its nuclear forces. Putin has walked away from, you know, several different arms control agreements from the INF Treaty back in 2018 to New START and CTBT. Uh, and then, you know, there's other things they're doing too. take a look at what's going on in, in Belarus right now, where they've claimed to station tactical nuclear weapons on the territory of Belarus. That brings nuclear weapons closer to NATO's borders, creates potential conditions for escalation. So we have to take all this into account. We monitor the situation. Now, we haven't seen a need to adjust our 
current nuclear posture. Um, but we do need to have a continuing understanding of, you know, thinking about Russia, what would his strategy be? Um, and then thinking through those escalation dynamics, as I said before, across a lot of different domains. So we could put together a, a lattice framework, if you will, of deterrence so that you really affect the adversary's uh, calculations you, so that the Russians don't miscalculate and think they have an opportunity when, and in fact, I don't think that they would. Yeah. Now it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break, but when we get back, I, I would like for you to give us a sense of how NATO is thinking about the, you know, a peer China, you know, some call it the three body problem, the two peer problem. How is NATO thinking about that? So you're listening to Nuclecast and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Jim Stokes, who is the director of nuclear policy at NATO. And I posed a question about NATO's view of China before the break. So Jim, help us understand how NATO thinks about this new challenge. Yeah, I think it's perhaps a kind of an unusual question. People wouldn't think that NATO is necessarily thinking about China, um, but I think it's important. And I'm glad that we are thinking about the implications of, of uh, not only China's rise in the world, but specifically its expansion and modernization of its nuclear stockpile. As, a, as you know, I mean, years ago, China started on this uh, modernization program. It's expanding its nuclear stockpile. It's developing a triad and at a pace and scale that no other nuclear power is undertaking right now. And uh, estimated to have about 500 operational nuclear warheads. But, you know, according to the U.S. Defense Department, that could grow to 1,000 warheads by 2030 and potentially 1,500 by 2035, which practically means that China will triple its nuclear arsenal within the next 15 years. Now, it's not only the number of warheads that are concerned, but also the variety of types of warheads that are developing and the delivery platforms that it's investing in. The concern here at NATO is this comes with absolutely zero transparency or willingness to engage in strategic arms control talks with the United States or with anybody else. Now, Let's go back in time a little bit. Remember that with the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and then later on with Russia, there was at least a decades-long history of strategic arms control talks. Even though there were some, some difficult years there, the U.S. and Russia developed a relationship, and they had appropriate communications channels that they put in place. We don't have any sort of understanding like that with China. Their lack of engagement on arms control, their nuclear expansion, all of these things are a concern with the allies. It's a little bit opaque in terms of where all that is going. And, you know, some people would say that China is pretty far away from NATO. That's true. Uh, but we live in an interconnected world. Security challenges and threats that come from the Indo-Pacific region have implications for Europe and vice versa. Right. The war that's going on here in Europe has implications elsewhere in the world. And. I would note that China's intercontinental ballistic missiles do have the ability to reach allied territory. And I think the question that I would ask is, would China potentially use those coercively to deter European nations and for what purpose? So it, it doesn't just have a regional context. I think within the Indo-Pacific region, we have to consider what are those implications here in Europe. And, and as you know, the 
China and Russia are developing a closer partnership. We're not exactly sure where that's going to go. Um, and they've both been voicing opposition to NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements within some of the disarmament fora. The Russians, I understand, I'm not quite sure why the Chinese are, are piling on there. Now, to your question about, um, you know, tripolar nuclear world, right now, that's kind of predominantly a question that the United States is grappling with at the moment. The question for, for NATO and the European allies out here is what would be the implication of the United States and its allies or coalition partners being involved in a conflict in the Indo-Pacific theater? And the key question for us is, would Russia take advantage of that here in Europe? So what, what we might call opportunistic aggression. So our job out here is to ensure that regardless of what's going on anywhere else in the world, that we continue to deter Russian aggression against NATO. And it wouldn't necessarily be a, you know, a China-Taiwan scenario that people go to. It could even be something on the Korean Peninsula, right? So if you're a student of history and, and you've seen how wars have played out, um, it can kind of turn into a coalition of different nations that are contributing forces and, and you know, even just a focus of effort. And so whatever's happening anywhere around the world and even what's going on in the Middle East right now, we have to maintain a laser-like focus on Russia for now and how we can continue to deter here in Europe. So that's kind of the, the context, if you will, for how NATO is thinking about uh, the rise of China and specifically um, you know, its, its expansion of its nuclear warhead program and, and different types of delivery systems. Now, one of the, you know, we're going to, we're running out of time, so we've got to get to Bob, but I wanted to ask before we get to Bob, uh, I wanted to ask you about, you know, so there's there's this movement uh, within the United States and it's, you know, it's been strong in Europe for decades. And and we now have the TPNW and this desire to have unilateral disarmament in this idealistic belief that if we disarm, you know, we present that we're we clearly mean no harm and therefore, you know, the adversaries will follow suit. Could you talk about this this challenge, you know, for NATO of TPNW and disarmament and what it means and the problem if it if it is one that it poses? Can can talk about that for a minute? Yeah, and I, I'm happy to. It's actually something that I I wasn't really tracking. I think maybe as an American, you know, living in the United States, you, you tend to be kind of insulated from some of these things. But you know, being here in, in Europe, you're, you're you're aware of it. And it's, um, it's a vibrant debate. And I think that that's an important thing to remember here is we all come from democratic nations. We have open societies and we do have a, a freedom of debate on these issues. But what's relevant here is, you know, NATO is increasingly under criticism from different types of activists who, who want unilateral disarmament. Um, so they're, they're attacking us and specifically those nuclear sharing arrangements that the burden sharing we have with different allies and I think it is because we have democratic nations with freedom of expression as compared to the Russians and the Chinese, uh, where they don't tolerate uh, any sort of activism or freedom of expression. So the disarmament community is kind of focused on um, the, the different allies that, that make up NATO and, and other, um, you know, in other countries. And specifically the TPNW, they mentioned the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or we'll just call it the Ban Treaty. Um, it doesn't really reflect, reflect reality, if you ask me. I mean, we, we live in a really challenging international security environment. Uh, it's, and the ban treaties 
at odds with existing nonproliferation and disarmament architecture and norms, and specifically with the, the NPT. And so NATO and all the allies oppose the ban treaty. We, we do not support it. We do support uh, the ultimate goal of a world without nuclear weapons in accordance with the NPT and all of its different provisions uh, in a way that would be verifiable, inc- promote international stability. Uh, but I don't think that the ban treaty is the path to get there. It doesn't really have any rigorous or clear mechanisms for verification. It's not been signed by any state that possesses nuclear weapons. And so I don't think it would actually result in the elimination of even a single nuclear weapon. So I'm not sure how they get from from there to here. Um, and I do think, importantly, it kind of risks undermining the, the existing and legitimate architecture that we have with the NPT, with the IAEA, and all the safeguards. So there's a lot of benefits that come from the NPT, which is why NATO continues to support that process and the way we want to engage uh, with the NPT in that forum in looking at uh, disarmament in general. Now, why is it that the, the Russians and the Chinese and even the Iranians are, are trying to challenge NATO and our nuclear deterrence policies? Um, I think that a lot of the information they're spreading is clear-cut. It's disinformation. Um, they're saying that our nuclear sharing arrangements are illegal or illegitimate, and that's just patently false just to clear up the history, and, and I know some of your listeners are probably aware of it, but for the entire audience, you know, we, we first had U.S. atomic weapons come over here into Europe in 1954. Um, and then after a few years, there was a lot of political and military deliberations that put in place the, the nuclear sharing arrangements, which is our arrangements or the United States arrangements with different European allies to host the U.S. nuclear weapons here in Europe. In 1966, the nuclear planning group that I mentioned earlier was established to exercise collective political control over NATO's nuclear mission. And then that provides a forum for non-nuclear NATO allies, so other than the United States or, or the United Kingdom or France, uh, to shape the alliance's nuclear policies and planning and as a way to guarantee their security so that they don't have to acquire nuclear weapons, right? So they remain nuclear weapons free. So our nuclear sharing arrangements were and remain in full compliance with the NPT, despite what other people are saying out there. When the NPT deliberations began in the 1960s, NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements had already existed. They were known to the Soviet Union. And in fact, we had bilateral discussions on the draft of the NPT between the United States and the Soviet Union. And there's very carefully negotiated text to ensure that no provisions prohibited NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements. So the Soviets actually agreed to this. And they did that because they thought it was better than having unbridled nuclear proliferation by different states. And so they said, okay, well, if the U.S. is maintaining control of its weapons in Europe, that's a better situation. So they codified that into the NPT, which when then, you know, that drafting process was complete in 1968, and entered into force in 1970. So all this stuff that you might see out there in the, in the public domain or, or certain countries that are pushing back on, on NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements, I would uh, I would just ask them to go back and check their history. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so it's that time in the show where I bring Bob out. Bob, of course, grants three wishes to our guests. And uh, like, like I'm sure you already know, they've got to be related to our discussions. No world peace, no end of all nukes, no, you know, great wealth, no, ap- you know, unlimited wishes. So with that said, what is your first wish for Bob? Okay. First wish for Bob. I'm going to 
I'm going to start big and we'll end up going in small. So of course, you know, my responsibilities out here really, again, deterring aggression from any adversary. And so my, my hope, my wish would be that nuclear weapons are never used, not only here in Europe, but anywhere else. All right. I think it's in everyone's interest that the nuclear taboo is not broken. So I don't want that to happen on my watch while I'm out here. I don't think we want to see that happen anywhere. So that's, that's wish number one. Okay. Good wish. Uh, wish number two. So on April 4th, we're going to celebrate the 75th anniversary of NATO. And my wish number two is to see continued strong U.S. leadership here within the alliance. Um, it's been like that for the last 75 years, especially on nuclear issues. I think all allies uh, uh, benefit from and appreciate the extended deterrence from the United States. And we want to see that continue in the future. Now, Bob, that's an easy one for you because I have no doubt that this will continue. So that's kind of a, I don't know if I get a, a fourth one, but I, I'm really confident in that. And maybe that's just the, the optimist in me as an American here, but it's really important here. I mean, the United States has a, a very important voice here within the Alliance on nuclear issues, and we want to continue seeing that going forward. And I think everybody uh, certainly appreciates that. Yeah. Okay. So final wish. Well, I firmly believe in the importance of the the DCA mission here in Europe. Um, Like I said, I've visited a number of the air bases. I've seen the aircraft. And uh, I think that it's a a really clear demonstration of the Alliance's unity on nuclear deterrence issues and absolutely resolve if we ever get into a a direct crisis or a conflict. Uh, The Allies are investing a lot of money in the F-35s. They're highly capable platforms and, you know, we've got the B61-12s coming to theater now. But again, because I've got experience from an acquisition organization, I know the timelines for, for coming up with new programs and eventually getting to field capabilities. In the nuclear domain, it can take decades. So I think it's prudent that we start thinking about planning for follow-on capabilities to some of the, the current ones we have here, because we need to continue looking at that future threat environment in the future and thinking through what that would be. And so, you know, we've got good momentum here in Europe. We're more comfortable talking about nuclear deterrence issues, and we need to kind of build on that to continue looking at ensuring that we've got a credible posture here in Europe and, and where we can go in the future. Yeah, that's another good wish. So, all right, Jim Stokes, Director of Nuclear Policy at NATO. Thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. I'll tell you, uh, the discussion with Jim Stokes was, it was a relief, you know, to hear his positive words towards the value of nuclear deterrence and the effort to elevate its importance and posture within uh, NATO. That was, that was, I mean, I couldn't be more pleased to hear that. And so I really enjoyed our discussion and hearing sort of where he's, you know, where he's headed and what he's thinking about nuclear posture in NATO. So hopefully you enjoyed the podcast. I certainly did. It was, you know, like I said, it was a relief to hear what he had to say. And so uh, thanks for listening. This has been a production of the NWA Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. 
Our executive producer is Kimberly Jamington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpel. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast.